Why did the developer quit smoking? I don't know. Because they imposed a new syntax. <laughs> there you go. Ba-doom. Hi, welcome to the Startup Stack. I'm your host, Lewis Barrel, and this week we're talking to Mike Stone. Mike's a developer and business owner. He's joining us from Boston, where, like many of us, is sheltering in place. He's going to be talking about his software development company, The NAR. What was it like starting the company? The pros and cons of his newly remote team, and the one thing he wished every potential client asked before hiring an outside dev team. Let's jump right into it. One, two, go. Okay, so I'd love to just start off with hearing about the NAR company. So you guys are a software development firm in Boston, have been in business for five years, have about 20 people. And, you know, I'd love to hear the story about how you started NAR, got together with your co-founders and decided to start the company. As you mentioned, we are a software consultancy. We build web and mobile applications as well as design, um, mostly UI UX design for web and mobile. And we started about five years ago uh, in late 2015. At that time, my co-founder, uh, Nick Maloney, and I were working together at a, another Boston-based product company called MiU Health. That company like startups do was going through some some tough times. Nick had previously been a consultant before joining MiU Health. So he had some connections to people that had experience there. We got connected, started a business previously, and he was interested in starting a business. So we got connected over nights and weekends, just started taking on projects very kind of lightweight sort of projects that we would take on. Um, but then once the uh, round of layoffs happened at the at MiU Health, we found ourselves in a perfect new job. We basically, we had some projects, we had some um, contacts and clients, and we transitioned over from working at MiU Health to working full-time at the NAR company. Uh, and that's how we got started. We, you know, it was just the two of us to start and slowly grew. The, the nice thing about the layoffs and, and kind of the opportunity through the chaos was that there was this group of really strong engineers and Miu Health also had a really fantastic engineering culture. So we had not only really strong engineers, but people we knew and worked with culture, the best practices were all there. And so we were able to bring on a bunch of people that we already knew they would you know, be great and develop a strong culture. And we were able to uh, bring them on to some of the projects that we were working on. The NAR company. It's a very unique name. How did you come up with it? We, we get that all the time and we're deliberate about wanting something that was going to be unique and different, something to stick out. Because when you're a new company, it's a crowded marketplace. There's tons of consultancies. And if someone's going down the list, we wanted something that would stick out a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I I totally know. I mean, I've I've named three companies at this point, and when people ask me about founding companies, it's funny, but I I always joke that like the hardest part about starting a company is coming up with a new name. It is really hard, and um, you know, as you know, coming up with a domain name is really hard too. We spent a don't, ton. Don't of even time. get me started on my <laughs> trials and tribulations in domain names. But I bet. Quick aside, if you want to learn more about buying domain names, we actually talked to one of the world's foremost domain name brokers on another episode of The Startup Stack. His name is Bill Sweetman, and he's great. Check out that interview when you're done with this one. It's in our feed. Sorry, back to Mike. And so, yeah, we went through this standard like rigmarole of every name that we liked was taken, uh, the domain name was taken. 
But we were in this tough point initially when we first took on those clients when it was nights and weekends. We didn't have a name and we were using our personal networks to try to find clients. Then we got to a point where they had to pay us and they needed to know who to make the check out to. And so that really made finding a name a priority. So kind of in a fit of frustration one evening when I th- like it was that day we had to have a name so they could pay us. Sorry, one of the founders who, who ended up leaving, but he was a snowboarder and he was like in this fit of frustration, like we just need like a NAR name. And everyone kind of stopped and looked at each other like maybe, maybe that'll work. And, you know, ended up settling on, on the NAR company. And the reason behind it is that we, we help solve your gnarly problems. And that was what we ended up going with. NAR is a fire-breathing Boston-based software consultancy. And I'm like, fire-breathing, right? I'm, I'm like, you have a, a tiger, some sort of tiger dragon, um, which I'm wondering if there's like a name for the tiger dragon on your on your homepage. Yeah, we have, I think it's four different NAR beasts. They don't have creative names <laughs> exactly. at all. They have names. It's like fire tiger, uh, <laughs> uh, laser eagle. There's another one that's like a warthog with like tire or tank tread legs. It's, it's weird. Our, our designer um, is just a phenomenal designer, but he um, he like really wanted to embody kind of like the the weirdness or, or like boldness of the brand. So um, it's like, what happens when a snowboarder, a software engineer, and a former professional lacrosse player get together? Uh, equals uh, narbeasts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you were a professional lacrosse player before starting NAR, and I want to hear about what did you learn in lacrosse and being a professional athlete and on those teams that still um, influences how you've built NAR and lead NAR today? Like sports, being on teams for so long is just really helpful for then growing a team. And it kind of sounds sappy, but I, I really believe it. And that's something that is my responsibility at NAR and that I love building a team and being part of a team that functions really well. Because I was on so many different teams, I got to see teams that worked well and teams that didn't work well, teams that succeeded and teams that failed. That was huge. I think it also equipped me with a team mindset where I want to help the people around me. There's yeah. like this common goal that we're working towards and all, all that kind of like stereotypical stuff. But the transition from like college to pro was also pretty eye-opening too, because the game changes a lot. Not like the physical game, but like you are now part of a business and it's very much more cutthroat and can you get the job done or not? There are certainly lessons in that that I learned like not only that life is that way, but that I learned to push myself and organize myself and get myself prepared to be in that type of environment. Mm-hmm. And I think that's mm-hmm. been helpful w- with the business as well. Teamwork makes the dream work. I love it. <laughs> I wanted to ask you one more question about running NAR. Um, you know, today you have 20 people and you have a number of clients. I- I'd love for, for you to tell me like today, um, you've clearly had a lot of success and you've you figured a lot of stuff out. But what are some of the big challenges that you face today? You know, it could be anything about finding new clients or closing them. I, you know, I'd love to hear about what's on your mind about running the running the business. That's a good question. And the thing that's on my mind the most now is that we have a really flat structure in the company. Like everyone's the same title. Everyone does the same thing. We don't have management layers or anything like that. 
And so we're stretching that model a bit now and we're it's working, but we're getting to the point where I have to kind of think what the next step is going to be there um, or if we even want to go to that next step, because right now like we have you know good quality control and it's manageable at this size. But a big thing is for us as we grow and grow, how can we keep tabs on everything that's going on and make sure everybody on the team is well supported on their projects? Um, so that's the biggest thing for me that I focus on. Well, I wanted to jump into the world of software development. You know, as you were describing the software consultancy, you were saying we do web dev, we do mobile dev, we do UI and UX design. There's kind of a, kind of a lot there. Well, you must meet clients sometimes, and maybe they don't have a good understanding of really even the differences. They're just like, hey, we, we need this built. And I was wondering if you could describe for us really the differences in some of the things that you do. And I would love to also understand, are there certain things that you do more of than than others, and you kind of just do a little bit, or is it more evenly spread out across those those different areas? We get approached all the time by people that are not technical, that have a product idea or, or work at a company that needs a mobile app for something. They will ask us, you know, like, what's it going to cost to build this? The types of questions that we get asked all the time and that we kind of pride ourselves in being able to kind of walk through that process uh, with non-technical folks as well as technical folks. And there's two branches to the type of work that we do. One is building the product side. And that's when someone comes to you saying, we want to build this application, can you help? And oftentimes, I mean, the, the answer for us is, is almost always yes. But what we'll often start out with is what we call a design discovery engagement. And that's because it's so hard. And this is a, a, a thing that I think is can be frustrating to people, but it is so hard to tell somebody how much a product is going to cost. And it's something that everyone just wants the answer like, okay, I get it, but just how much is it going to cost? It's a bit like saying, you know, how much is a house going to cost? And so what we often do as a way of a budget-friendly way to get to that number, get to an estimate, and also make some progress and get the client to understand what this is going to look like uh, is this design discovery. And so that's when our head of growth and our designer will work with the client to understand what their vision is, what they want to build, and start to iterate on some wireframes and get towards the deliverable at the end of this process is final design comps for their initial vision, along with a estimate for what it would take our team to build that out. So that's one of the branches that, that we work in. Oftentimes, people, especially non-technical people, don't value the design part of that as much as the development. They think that they'll have an engineer just do it, but there's a big difference between what an engineer does and what a designer does. Mm -hmm. Engineer gets tasked with figuring out how someone th something's going to look on the page. It's often not as good as what a designer would would actually do. Other times, maybe there is a designer on the team, but then you know maybe there's a, a difference between 
how your engineers like to work with the designers on your team and you've got a set of designs coming over from a different organization and that must also be a challenge. Totally. And that's kind of the other branch of the type of work that we do that I I mentioned, which is more where the client's coming to you and they already have a team, but they maybe need more velocity. They need to move faster. Maybe we're working in an area of expertise that they don't have in-house, but they have a designer, for instance. Mm -hmm. More embedding ourselves in their process where we kind of differentiate is we're very client focused. So we have opinions and best practices and ways that we like to work engagements, but we very much want to learn from clients and learn how they're doing things and then blend what we do and what they do, you know, hopefully leave them in a better place at the end of the engagement, but also be able to learn how other people, other companies are working and take those learnings with us to Mm -hmm. other clients. So there is, I would say about 50-50 where sometimes we're building stuff from scratch and sometimes we're working as teammates with existing teams. You know, in my experience, both running companies, um, I'm a mentor to a number of companies, an investor in a number of companies, probably the number one request that I get on the startup side when people are building companies is really around engineering talent. You know, there are a lot of firms out there like yourself that can help but there there is a reluctance to bringing in outside help that you know that isn't kind of on your full-time staff and i'm wondering what advice would you give to other startup ceos about how to evaluate a firm like a software consultancy like yourself what should what should they be looking for i think a lot of times it's looking at their portfolio and the types of products they've built getting referrals from clients and also like looking on LinkedIn to see who works there and what is the level of experience of the people on staff that you might be paired up with. There's a lot of consultancies that might be kind of sales heavy. There's other consultancies that are engineering heavy. There's other ones that are design heavy. So doing some snooping to find out who you're talking to and if that suits your needs. In terms of like hiring talent internally versus externally, we get that a lot too. It can be a little bit tricky because especially as a company starting out, I think it's really important that the foundation is laid well and that the application is built to be extended and kind of built to last. And oftentimes we'll see companies that, why would I go with you and 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 pay your rate versus hiring somebody internally who can get the job done? And mm-hmm. I think a lot of the times it comes down to building that foundation. And we actually use this term foundational software when we're talking with potential clients, because that's really what it is. It's something that you can build the company around and they'll be able to come on and onboard and understand the patterns that are being used and and have a lot to reference. But there is a like expertise, uh, time to market, and cost savings that can come from using consultancies where you're you're saving the expense of hire and the risk of hiring somebody full time with benefits as well as the time that it takes to review resumes get them through the hiring process and all of that if you do your diligence and find the right consultancy for your needs um, you can kind of hit the ground running and build something that is going to last a, a long time that you can then hire behind we always know that we're a short-term solution. So we'll go away. But Mm -hmm. we've had many projects where we actually 
review the resumes and help in the hiring process and then onboard, have those engineers work with us and onboard them and we go away and they stay with the project. And that, totally. that's actually been a really successful yeah. uh, offboarding process. Well, it's it, so it's interesting. You're, we're doing all this talking about hiring and recruiting and internal versus external talent. So tough question for you. Have you ever had a, a client that was working with you try to hire some of the team members at NAR to their company? Or, or maybe a team member at NAR go to, go to one of the clients? And that, how do you think about that? Yeah, that's a, a good question. So we've had a similar situation. It wasn't exactly that. We had an engineer who was going to leave NAR. His client that he'd been working with for a long time approached me and said, would you be okay with me approaching the engineer to see if they want to come on full-time? And they, they ended up doing that. That felt okay. It, it's kind of like a big no-no of like when we work with clients, we're not going to poach their talent and they're not going to poach our talent. Um, and you can burn some bridges that way. There are some companies that like that is their model. It's like contract to hire and that's what they do. Uh, for a company like us, that's not the case. It has happened in that roundabout way for us, but I think it's pretty known with the clients that we have and it's in like the MSA and stuff that, you, that that's not the relationship. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I wanted to transition into trends you're seeing in both the technical aspects of software um, development, but you know, also there's a lot of other stuff going on in the world right now with uh, you know a huge move to to remote work and COVID. How is the business different today um, than it was you know a few years ago? What are you seeing? First of all, we're remote now. We weren't remote before. We have still have an office in downtown Boston, and that's something where we're kind of within these trends, we're kind of thinking, how long is this going to last? Like, are we just going to be a remote company now? There's been a bit of an adjustment to being remote, even if it is temporary. We're big believers in constantly kind of evaluating ourselves and our process and making adjustments. We have parts of our process, like our morning standups that have gone through like many iterations of how we execute on those to be helpful to the team. So we've made some tweaks to our process because of this. We, we used to not have daily standups. Uh, reason being is that everybody's, for the most part, like there's a lot of different teams going on and it, there can be a bit of a distraction if you have stand up with your client and then you come to NAR and you have stand up with NAR and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, to keep the day moving forward and delivering more value to clients. We, we do them twice a week, uh, traditionally, but we found that moving remote, we started to do them every day, just so there's at least one touch point with the team every day. You're not seeing each other around the office. Uh, we also always have video on um, for our meetings and just having that touch point. And our standups are a little bit different too. This is another thing, another kind of trend that's changed, but it's not so much like what do you do yesterday? What do you have going on today? And what are your blockers? It's what challenges do you have right now? How could someone on the team help you with your challenges? And what are you excited about? Mm -hmm. you know, those questions and how we hold our standups have, have gone through many changes. You know, one of the reasons we started Rocket Place was that we believed that there were really great service firms, consultancies just like NAR all over the country. They 
could collaborate remotely, you know, regardless if they were in different cities. Um, you know, you talked a lot about, you know, some of your initial clients, you guys were going to networking events and, you know, you hired a, a you know, biz dev person to kind of source new business. I'm wondering, you know, have you noticed changes to how you bring in new business? Um, has that become more remote in any ways with everything that's going on? Most of our work now actually comes from referrals so or inbound leads. So there's certainly a lot of meetings, you know, reviews and stuff like that that will happen on Hangouts or more through like email than, than meetings sometimes. But we certainly had a bit of a grim period when COVID first started coming on really strong in like March when a lot of companies were really tight with their budgets and didn't want to spend according to the plans that they had set out at the beginning of the year. But then we've kind of seen more recently a bit of a resurgence and there's many more like cold leads coming in through our website. And, um, you know, I guess the nice part about being a software consultancy is you really only need your computer. So our transition to remote, uh, both with meetings and, and just our daily work has been, um, really nice. And it's made us seriously consider if we want to be a remote company going forward. What about on the technical side? We talked a little bit about web dev and mobile dev. Is mobile dev a larger percentage of your business than it ever was? You know, even within mobile, I'm wondering is what's the balance between iOS and Android? Or is it really like we need to do both all the time? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an area that has changed a bit since when we started. So there's like mobile dev, then there's front end development and back end development. It used to be that the front end development side was like the Wild West. There was React and Angular and Backbone and Ember. And every week there was some new front-end framework that was coming out that everybody was really excited about. And, and I imagine that's really challenging for you as a consultancy because you meet a new client and they're like, we're, you know, we're building an Ember and like, do you or do you not have competency in those areas? You know, how, how do you think about that and constantly staying up to speed? The first time we used React, we were like, this is great. And yeah. we kind of made a decision of we are going to focus on React for our front-end development um you know luckily the market kind of trended that way too so we're in a good spot now where we're getting a lot of react requests before we state that that's one of our core competencies and and there still is like a good amount of angular work and stuff like that yeah what we try to do is have a hub and spoke type model where we have a lot of almost like partner organizations that we can send work back and forth if it doesn't meet our competencies. So if we have an Angular request for an application, we have a company we can go to. We're still able to serve the client and say, this isn't the best fit for us, but you know, let me introduce you to this other company that specializes in the type of work that you need. And so there's a lot of kind of like friendly competition in the in the space too, where you're you're all competing for the same work, but people have different focuses. Because you can't, you kind of can't do it all, uh, especially at a small size. And do you have any any predictions on like what the future of software dev looks like over the next five years? Yeah, it's so it's so hard because um, you know it changes really quick with software. I think React is great. I I would be surprised if that goes anywhere. You know, you had mentioned native as well, which has been an interesting story over the past number of years too, because 
traditionally, you have an iOS team and you have an Android team and you have a web team. So there's not a lot of mixing Mm -hmm. between them in in terms of skill set because it's all different languages that people are working in and different tools and that sort of thing. More recently with like React Native, you can kind of combine all of those teams into one and you're able to kind of write once, deploy anywhere. It's not quite that easy, but you're able to write the same or similar React code that you would in the web and your JavaScript front-end engineers are able to not only work on your web application, but they can work on your mobile application. And that one team can do both Android and iOS. That's pretty huge. I think it's really helpful for startups too that can't afford to have mobile engineers can be really, all engineers are really expensive. And so it's tough to have to hire three people just to get your product uh, to market, but you can really take advantage there. So I wouldn't be surprised to see more with like React Native and React. There's all sorts of other technologies that are competing to do similar things, but I I think Mm -hmm. it is really a huge advantage to React Native that it it uses React, which already has a ton of market share. So I wouldn't be surprised to see even more of that. There's other technologies like GraphQL for API development and stuff like that that I think will gain some more traction. I imagine that every relationship you start with a new client is different. And I'm wondering if you had, through your experience, any advice that you would give to new clients as you know, they start a relationship with software consultancies or the NAR company, like what is the question that you wish they ask before they start working with you so that you really kick off the relationship in the best way? I guess depending on the client, there can be a good amount of client education in just general software development practices. It's not really one question that I would say they should ask, but, or I guess if it were to be one question, maybe like, what is this process going to look like? Especially people that haven't done it before, they kind of come into it with, you know, build me this thing. And there's a lot that goes into the building of that thing. It's all this kind of like invisible work that needs to get done and all this like coding and design and work behind the scenes. So we do a lot of education or, or working through the process with the client's initially. Um, we try to always do it during the that sales process of this is how this is going to go. Kind of understanding the process of what it looks like of you know working and iterating with a software consultancy, I think is really smart. And, and I think a lot of um, potential clients really could be better educated in that as they you know get started with you, kind of as that client comes to you is like, oh, I just need this built. Can you just build this? And I, I think it's really smart that you spend time walking them through that process. But it does make me think of um, a follow-up because I've built a lot of products um, with my teams. And you, build, you spend a lot of time, you think about it, you design it, you build it, you release it. And now we learn a ton from our users. Certain things aren't working um, from, from a UX UI perspective. We have bugs. Maybe actually it's working really well and we have challenges with maintaining and scaling the system or there's other things that arise in terms of enhanced security. How do you think about kind of that process of post-delivering work and building it out over time? How, how do you work with your clients to do that? Yeah, that actually starts really early on with us when we're in the sales process. And we'll go through that. I mentioned earlier, the design and discovery engagement, where we really learn what it is they're trying to build. And then we basically take that product and whittle it down with the client of what of this do you really need? Like, What's need to have versus nice to have so that we can increase the, the time to market? Because while we're sitting there building before it's been released, we don't know how customers are going to receive 
that product. Mm -hmm. And so we work with them of, let's try to phase this out. Let's MVP this to start and get only exactly what needs to be in this first version so that we can get it out and learn. You know, maybe that's a good learning for some of these clients that haven't done the process before of technology or like your product's always evolving. You're never done with your product. So we will build that initial piece. And we have a lot of stuff that's queued up to do after that. But what can we do to get that product into people's hands as soon as possible and then start working on the other things and continually be adding new features and extending existing features? So it really starts early on. And then the biggest task, especially once we get close to launch, is prioritization. And that can be really tough for for everybody, for you know, for engineers and particularly for the stakeholders that, well, everything is the highest priority. Getting them to really say, like, you know, which one of these do you want first um, can be a, a really tough thing. But we try to get an early jump on that as as much as we can. Do you find that some clients are like clients forever? I, I'm wondering, like, what's your longest standing client? We do a lot of work with the state of Massachusetts, and those projects are really long. We've had some of those that have gone on for multiple years. Most of our projects are closer to like a six-month time frame. Yeah. We have a lot of clients that will come back. So we have like long-standing clients, but it's not a full duration of, of work. You know, It's a year later, they'll come back to us and, yeah. and want us to help out with something else. Okay, I wanted to maybe end with you giving some advice to maybe the younger version of you and Nick five, six years ago or out there today, a couple of really talented software engineers thinking about starting their own software consultancy. What advice would you give for them? The biggest area where I was naive was probably around cash flow and just how important that is. So we're a bootstrapped company, so we didn't raise money and we didn't have this big bank account that we could draw from. And so we had to be really conservative and make sure we were managing our cash flow really well. And we never got in too big of trouble. We had one whoopsies and and a couple close calls, but making sure that we managed the cash flow well was really important. If I could turn back the tables, I would I would like to bring that knowledge that I have now with me. Tell us more about the big whoopsie. I want to hear about that. <laughs> it it wasn't a huge deal, but within the first year, we had one where we had to uh, loan back the company some money in order to make payroll which was pretty nerve-wracking. It was really tough because we had so much money in like accounts receivable that clients owed us, but we weren't maybe like getting paid on time or the terms were too far out. Our payroll was draining our bank account. So it's like, man, we should have all this money, but we still have to pay our engineers, you know, on the cadence that we we have. So uh, we ended up having to to loan it back. It ended up as no big deal because we just got refunded when the cash came in. But yep. uh, it was a big like eye opening experience of like, oh, this can happen, and we should make sure we do whatever we can so it doesn't. Yeah, accounts receivable and cash flow is um, a big pain point for a lot of our clients at Rocket Place and helping and solve that problem and making sure that people get paid on time and that they can rely on getting paid is is one of the big challenges that we're hoping to solve with our platform. Mike, this has been great. I really enjoyed this. It was really cool learning more about NAR, hearing your thoughts about software development and where that's going. It's a really exciting company and I'm excited to see what happens for you guys in the future. So thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was great to get connected and great to be on Rocketplace too. I I love the direction you guys are going. So thank you so much for having me on and giving me this opportunity to talk to you. 
That was awesome. I learned so much from Mike, and I really can't thank him enough for coming on to the show. For more on Mike and our conversation today, visit www.rockandplace.com slash podcast. Make sure to tune in next week. The easiest way to know when new episodes are out is to subscribe to The Startup Stack in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to them. So you should do that. Thanks for joining. The Startup Stack, written and edited by Hannah Levy, produced by Leah Jackson.